Yeah, it's wonderful to be with you. I've, uh, I've actually been on uh, quite a tour recently. Um, over the last three weeks, I've been in Krabo, Worcester, now here. And next Sunday, I'll be in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, and it's a wonderful privilege to just be able to share uh, the Word of God. I think um, one of the tragedies for many believers is, especially when we've been saved a long time, we begin to take precious things for granted. You know, and um, you know, 30 years ago, who would have thought that, it would, that we would all be walking around most of the day with the Bible in our pockets? Yeah? <laughs> uh, and I prefer a paper Bible, but sometimes it's easier with all my tabs and all my notes on here. Um, but we've got more access to the Bible than ever before. And if we don't know, I, I, even when I was at Bible college, if, if you wanted to research things, it was go down to the library and try and find the right books and find the commentaries. Now it's easy. You just sit at your computer, type in a couple of words, and you get all this information, which is wonderful and horrendous at the same time. <laughs> but I hope that we, we continually stir up a passion for the word of God and to hear God in our lives. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I talk to people and they say, oh, wouldn't it have been wonderful to be one of the apostles? To walk with Jesus for three years. And I go, yeah, but you've got that same privilege. Yeah, you've got that same privilege. You can walk with Jesus. And then, you, you know, we have prophets coming into town and, and they come into a meeting and they start prophesying over people and, and they don't prophesy over every single individual because there's no time and, and some people walk out of there disappointed. I didn't get a prophetic word. And I love the fact that, that God speaks through people and prophesies through people, but there's something even more incredible than getting a prophetic word off somebody else. And that's the fact that God will speak to you directly. Isn't that a greater privilege? In the Old Testament, they had to rely on prophets. The hallmark of the New Testament we see in Acts 2 is Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel promised, that you will all prophesy. The ability to hear the heart of God is the hallmark of the New Testament believer. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. And so we, we have this incredible privilege that we have the scriptures, but we also have a prophetic revelation. And those aren't two separate things, they're intertwined, and one will never contradict the other. But we're living in a day and age where truth is being distorted and diluted and twisted. Who came to the 412 conference? It was wonderful, right? The only thing that wasn't quite wonderful was sat there wondering if this tent is going to collapse with the wind. And that wind was buffeting the tent. And actually, it was a good job we cancelled the Monday because when the guys got there on the Monday, that tent was broken. The aluminium pillars were twisted. Some of the tents had collapsed. The strength of the wind 
was such that the tent had not been able to withstand the wind. And scripture talks about winds of doctrine. In Ephesians 4, you know, does anybody know what Ephesians 4.12 says? Ephesians 4, 11 and 12? <laughs> no, we've no idea. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, uh, it was he, Jesus, who gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But then it goes on to talk about what the benefits to us as a believer are in partnering with the apostolic, what the apostolic does for us. And it goes on to say, uh, to equip us for works of service so that we may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Part of the benefit of being linked to an apostolic uh, field and, and being linked into a local church is that we can be grounded and anchored so we're not blown backwards and forwards by every wind of doctrine. And throughout history, there have been different winds of doctrine. But it, I don't know, I've not lived through all of history. I've not lived as long as some people. <laughs> but in the years that I've been alive, it feels like those winds are getting stronger. It really does. It feels like like Google is a Google is a, a wonderful tool in some ways. But it's also horrible. Because you can Google any doctrine and to find truth is so difficult. There is so much garbage out there. And some of it is the cunning of men. Some of it is uh, people with their own agendas. People, some people are sincerely wrong. But it's winds of doctrine that are blowing through the churches around the world. And some of us enjoy that. Some of us want the wrong doctrine. Is that a shocking statement? But it's true. We're even warned about that. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So some people want the bad doctrine. Other people are just don't know what bad doctrine is. And some people are confused by bad doctrine. But I want to help us this morning and talk about how do we secure ourselves when all of this bad doctrine is floating around, when it's blowing, and it's blowing with some force. And all you have to do is, is look at what much of the church is saying about repentance at the moment. I've heard very popular preachers. I've got a little rule of thumb, by the way. It's not, it's not a law. I'm not putting this on you. It's my little rule of thumb that if I go into a Christian bookshop and look at the top 10, I don't buy any of those. <laughs> the 10 most popular. Because people, are, people have got itching ears. We, we live in a man-centered generation where they want, to he, want a message that makes them feel good and gives them an easy out. They have a man-centered theology, not a God-centered theology. And I've heard 
popular preachers who would be on that top 10 in a Christian bookstore say, God doesn't want you to repent. God is more grieved by repentance than he is by sin. Yeah, it's shocking. And that's not just some obscure little cult. That is massively popular in the Christian church at the moment. Messages around um, grace that nothing you can do can affect your relationship with God. That you could go out and... Uh, we had a guy in our church, he was a married man, he was going out sleeping with prostitutes. And he said, but I'm under grace, so it's okay. In fact, he said this, I want to shock you because this is not... This is becoming mainstream in many churches. He said, when I sleep with a prostitute, I feel the grace of God. We disciplined him out of the church because he was unrepentant. He was deliberately and willfully sinning. Two weeks later, he was ministering in a church down the road. And they were condemning us saying, how can you do that? Jesus doesn't reject anybody. I said, we're not rejecting him, we're disciplining him. And Hebrews tells us, if we're not disciplined, we're orphans. We're illegitimate. Churches that tell you that Jesus just wants to give you your best life. You know, he wants you to be happy and rich and healthy and it's like, actually, I heard something profound by Jordan Peterson, who isn't even a Christian. And he said this, he said, look at the life of Abraham. Abraham was happy in his father's house. His father was prosperous. And God called him out of that for a greater calling, something bigger than himself. And when he called him out, what did that require? Conflict, difficulty, persecution. He said he wasn't interested in happiness because ultimately that happiness doesn't fulfill. He called him out to something bigger than himself for the glory of God. God is less interested in your happiness than he is in his own glory. But here's the deal. When we understand that and we're living for his glory, that's when we are most fulfilled. But that's not the message that's being preached. We're now being told we serve a non-binary God with a transgender Jesus. Seriously, in many churches, these are the winds of doctrine. And these may be extremes, but within the extremes, there's, there's different degrees that are leading many people astray from the truth. If you're a fan of English history or the series The Crown, you would know that Queen Elizabeth, who passed away last year, she became queen because her father's brother had to abdicate because he wanted to marry a divorced woman. That's only how many years ago? 80 years ago. 80 years ago, divorce was seen as something that would the church would not remarry a divorced person, and I'm not condemning anybody, but the church is so compromised on issues of marriage and divorce. 
It's hard to find a, a, a core doctrine that hasn't been perverted, twisted, or diluted these days. And when you find a church that's holding to the truth, we're considered a cult. <laughs> and we're not a cult. We're just a people who are passionate about obeying Jesus and put him in, putting him at the center. So how do we do that? Because the problem is all of us are easily deceived. All of us. There's not a single person here who isn't easily deceived. You know, sometimes I talk about submission to authority, which is, we'll get onto that just now. And people go, oh, but you know, I can't trust men because men are unreliable. What if they lead me astray? You know, some people say, I can't trust the Bible. It was written by men. So, so were your science books, but you seem to believe that. <laughs> people say, yeah, but what if I can get led astray by other people? Yeah, it's possible. But scripture tells us this, your own heart is deceitful beyond anything else. And deception isn't about how clever you are or how long you've been in ministry or how well you know the Bible, because there's an enemy out there trying to deceive us, and it's a spiritual dynamic. It's not about how, how clever you are. And we could all be easily led astray, sometimes sincerely and sometimes because of our own evilness and sinfulness. Is this making sense? And I want to I wanna know what the truth is, because I want to follow the truth. I don't, wanna, I don't want to be five degrees off the truth. I don't want to be going the other way. I, I, I want the truth, and I want to be following the truth. But I, in order for me to give myself completely, I've got to be quite convinced that I'm heading in the right direction. I don't want to be second-guessing myself all the time. Have you ever been there where, you, where you're feeling like, this is what I'm, but then you're second-guessing yourself all the time? It's a horrible situation. It's like you, you're double-minded. So I want to help us find how can we safely navigate these winds of doctrine and how can we make sure that we don't get lost. Is that okay? And God has given us three things. And it's the principle I like to talk about is triangulation. You know, if you've got a GPS, a GPS works on triangulation. So your phone, how does it know where you are? How does it know where you are? Because it triangulates. It has three fixed points that it knows the location of, and it pings to those three points, and that signal comes back, and it knows exactly how far you are from three points and can tell you exactly where you are. Two points, you can have a rough idea. But three is the minimum number of points you need to, to triangulate yourself to know your exact position. And the key to getting to the right destination is to know where you are. Because if I don't know where I am and somebody gives me directions, they're pretty useless to get to where I'm going, right? If I'm starting from the wrong place. So, how do I, so I've got to know where I am and where I'm going. So how do I triangulate? What are those three things? And the first thing is the word of God. 
we have been given the word of God, the scripture. And so often I'm dealing with pastoral issues with people who are trying to make decisions for their lives, trying to navigate life. And they don't even understand the boundaries that God has given them. Because the one way that we need to understand Scripture is that in many ways, Scripture gives us the boundaries. It doesn't give us the exact answer always on its own. Can I give you an example? If my wife decided to leave me and prostitute herself and sleep with many men for money, would it be a sin for me to divorce my wife, according to the Bible? Purely according to the Bible, if I'm only taking the Bible, I could look at the Bible and find enough verses to say I'm free. But there was somebody in the Bible who had that situation. A guy called Hosea. Would it, be a, would it be a sin for Hosea to divorce his wife? Yes. Because God told him not to. The law that he had gave him the boundaries. It told him what he could not do. And one of the beautiful things is... God gives us boundaries, and our boundaries lie in pleasant places. And when we know where the boundaries are, we can play with freedom. They did a, a, an experiment years ago with a bunch of kids in a park. And this park was bordered by busy roads. And without offense there, they put all kinds of play equipment in this park, and then they watched the kids play. And the kids all played with the equipment right in the middle. Then they finished, they put a fence around. And then they brought some kids back to play. And the kids played in every corner of the park. There was a safety in the boundaries. Scripture provides boundaries for us. And it's not, you know, some people would criticize Christianity. It's a bunch of rules to spoil your fun. It's all about what God telling you what you can't do. No, God's putting boundaries in place, not to crush us, but to protect us and, to, and so we can enjoy the freedom that he gives us. But scripture has very clear boundaries within which we operate. And if you don't know the word of God, you don't know those boundaries. And if you don't know the word of God, you're going to trip and fall. If you don't know the word of God, you're going to have no idea which direction to start traveling in. But I'm going to say something controversial now. The Bible on its own is not enough. On its own, it's not enough. Some people say, yeah, but... Mike, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Thank you. Ah, that's better. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing the, by the word of God. So if I read the word of God, my faith will increase. That's not what that scripture is saying. The context of that scripture is that salvation, saving faith, comes when we preach the gospel to people. Go look it up. How will they believe if they've not heard? And how will they hear if we don't go? Because faith comes by hearing. Now, is it true that reading scripture can build our faith? Yes, but it's not inevitable. I know lots of atheists who read the Bible. I know lots of people who read the Bible and just get confused. I've come across people who've read the Bible and decided God must be horrible because he tells us to kill babies and stuff. See, just the Bible is not enough. And I'll explain why. There's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament when Moses is building the tabernacle and, and God says to him, build everything exactly according to the pattern I'm giving you. Why? Because this is a picture. The tabernacle is a picture of a greater reality, a greater spiritual reality. And so he builds the the tabernacle and there's the, the holy of holies where the presence of God is and there's the holy place. And there's only three pieces of furniture in the holy place. And this is as what you need to pass through to get into the presence of God. And the three, three pieces of furniture, one is the altar of incense, which represents prayer and worship. One is the table of showbread, but where they put the loaves and that represents fellowship and communion. And the third was the lampstand. And without the lampstand, there was no illumination. Without the lampstand, you couldn't see. Without the lampstand, you couldn't have done anything else. And God says to Moses in Exodus 25, he says, make a lampstand out of pure gold and hammer it out. Its base, its shaft, its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. In other words, make it out of gold and it's one solid piece. You're not taking different pieces. You're making it out of one, one piece of gold. Six branches extend to the sides, three on one side, three on the other, one in the middle. And then there's going to be these flowers and buds and blossoms. And so this was what God gave to illuminate the work of the priests. We are priests. What illuminates our work? The lampstand. Now, most people don't bother when they're reading this to go into all the detail and do all the calculations. But if you look at the decorations on this, remember it's made of one piece. And if you add up the decorations on one side, there's 39 decorations. If you add up the decorations on the other side, there's 27 decorations. 39 and 27. Somebody's just said, wow, because they understand the significance of those numbers. What's the significance of those numbers? 39 plus 27 for a total of 66. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New, 66 in total. Coincidence? I think not. This is God revealing to us in a picture of something of the role of the scripture. 
But here's the problem with the lampstand. Without oil, it gave no light. And the priests were commanded to consistently attend the lampstand. In Leviticus chapter 24, um, it says, Outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. In other words, the, the, the wicks must be trimmed and you must ensure there's enough oil in the lamps. Anybody sing that song at Sunday school? Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. And that's a prayer. God, what is the oil symbolic of? The Holy Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, continually walk with the Spirit. When Paul's talking in the New Testament, the grammar and the language is consistently on an ongoing basis, keep in step with the Spirit. Attend the Spirit in your lives continually because without that, there is no illumination. It's Word and Spirit together. And the challenge with many churches when I talk about winds of doctrine, it's also winds of bad practice. We've got charismaniac churches of an extreme who ignore the Bible and just live off whatever the latest revelation is, even if it contradicts Scripture. And if it contradicts Scripture, it cannot be the Holy Spirit because God does not contradict himself. And then on the other side, you've got people, and sometimes in reaction to that craziness, have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit and say, all we need is the Bible. Interestingly, Paul writes, and he's talking about the old covenant, but he says the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. And he's not quite saying this, but this is within the spirit of what he's saying. The problem with the old covenant was many people looked at it as a set of rules and regulations outside of the illumination of the spirit, and it brought death because nobody could meet its standards. And even the New Testament, I believe, will bring death if you don't have the Holy Spirit revealing what it means. And so, two of the three things I need to triangulate, I need the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And they go hand in hand, they are intertwined. And when I get a prophetic word, it must line up with Scripture. Because Scripture is my final authority. It's the boundaries. Not, it got, it, nothing, connects, nothing can contradict it. But I need the Holy Spirit because the Bible didn't tell me what to preach this morning. There wasn't a chapter and verse I could quote, thou shalt preach on this this morning. In fact, if you're looking at the New Testament for how to do church, Unfortunately for us elders, it tells us very little. Am I right, Richard? It doesn't tell us how long our meetings must be, how many songs we must sing, if any. Must we do worship and then preach or preach and then work? Must we do uh, uh, home groups or communities and how many must be in a community? And when must they meet? And It tells us very little about how to do church. But it tells us a huge amount about how to do church. 
It gives us the principles of being connected to the head, being connected to Christ and building on him and then be reliant on the Holy Spirit within the boundaries that he set. And it's the same for your life. Have we got any engineers here? Where in the Bible does it say be an engineer? Any teachers? Okay, maybe teachers you can find in Scripture. But it doesn't give you that detail, right? And yet, what job I do, who I marry, how many kids I have, where I live, what I do with my money, I want to hear from the Lord because I want it to please Him. So Scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God. That's a good boundary within which to work. Be generous. Give. With marriage, it's a bit difficult because sometimes it says it's good to be married. In other places, it says better to remain single. And so people say the, the Bible contradicts itself. Um, no, it doesn't. Well, in some ways, it actually does. But it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. And it's holding things in tension and... See, for me, the the Bible was given not so that we could have long conversations about doctrine. The Bible was given for life and godliness. The Bible was given so that we could follow Jesus and become more like him. So I'm on a narrow path, okay? And there's the truth. And the Bible's leading me towards truth. But I have a tendency to veer this way. And when I'm going too far to the left, Scripture wants me to come back because I'm too far left. But if I'm veering this way, it wants me to come back. So it pushes me that way. And so sometimes Scripture's pushing you left. Sometimes it's pushing you right because it depends which way your error is. And without the Holy Spirit and a revelation of who you are, what happens is when my tendency is this way, I read all the scriptures that want to push me this way. And when my tendency is that way, my itching ears want to hear messages that take me that way. Can I give you an example? In Galatians, in the same chapter, Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. So don't allow yourselves again to be yoked by slavery. In other words, there were some people there that thought they had to obey the law in order to perfect their salvation. And they were were veering towards legalism and, and Paul's pushing them back. And as he's saying that, you can just imagine a whole bunch of people in the Galatian church saying, preach it, Paul, preach it. Sort these legalists out. But then, 13 verses later, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't use that freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Because people were veering this way and saying, no, there's no law. We can do whatever we like. Legalism, license. For those in license, they need pushing this way. For those in legalism, they need pushing this way. But the problem is, And I've seen this so often. Some guy, like this guy I referenced earlier, oh, he he wants all the 
all the things about there is no law, I'm not under law, I'm not. And he, he just reads all of those scriptures and he ignores all of the scriptures that talk about obedience and repentance. So I need the Holy Spirit and scripture working together. And then I'm a lot safer. The problem is, two points of reference are often not sufficient for triangulation. Why? Because you're probably different to me. You're probably much wiser, more spiritual than I am. But I can be so deceived and so blind to my own biases and so blind to my own sin and my own faults that I attribute things to the Holy Spirit that aren't the Holy Spirit. I can mishear him. I can get things wrong. I can have a wrong, um, a wrong perspective or grid through which I hear him. So here's some ways in which I think it's not good. Okay, these are these are unhelpful ways to hear God. Okay, so some part, sometimes people say this. You know, I had three. I had two options. Option one and option two. I didn't have enough faith for option one, so I went for option two. Because anything not done in faith is sin. Does that sound spiritual and good? Well, if all we ever did was what we had faith for, <laughs> we'd be in trouble, right? It is true, we, but it's not about doing what I have faith for. It's finding faith for what God wants me to do. So that paradigm, I will do what I've got faith for, is an unhelpful paradigm. Another one is this. I hear this all the time, especially for young people. I've decided to, to do this, and I've said to God, if he doesn't want me to do it, he must stop me. Yeah, if I was a parent... I'd love to hear that from my kids, right? <laughs> I think there is, there is some truth in saying, Lord, please, please. Yeah, but it's like, I want to ask what pleases you and do that, not do what I want and you stop me if you don't like me doing it. You see how we twist things around and, and we're, we're putting it from our perspective rather than God's perspective. God opened a door. God does open doors for us, but so does Satan. Sometimes the route that we need to take in the Lord, we need to kick that door down. We need by faith to persevere until we, we get our breakthrough. The easy road is not always the easy road. When Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted by Satan, Jesus had come to win the nations to himself. And Satan says to him, if you just bow down to me, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the nations. If you just... Here's a door. I'm opening this door. An easy way to get what you've, you've come for. And when those doors supernaturally open. Speaking of the rugby. <laughs> we, we, we had an, an, a good friend of mine was an, was an elder with us. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. But before he was an elder, he, he was... Um, he was a prop forward with the Stormers. 
He'd been to New Zealand. I mean, really, really, one of the strongest, physically strongest people I've ever come across in my life. This man was a monster. And obviously, when you're at that level, your desire is to play for the Springboks, right? And he was doing everything possible. And one day, one of the elders sat down with him and said, what is your greatest desire? What is the cost of your soul? Is playing for the Springboks the cost of your soul? Because if it is, Satan will pay it. Then he realized, wait a minute. My highest ambition mustn't be to play for the Springboks. My highest ambition must be to serve Jesus. And I'm convinced some Springboks are Springboks because their desire is to serve Jesus. But I see parents all the time investing so much into the kids, wanting the kids to become Springboks. And they've got, what, a 0.01% chance of ever playing for South Africa and a 100% chance of standing before Jesus one day. And so even our children, we're, we're pointing our children in a direction. And are we hearing God for that? Are we pointing them biblically or are we pointing them with our values? And we get so deceived with our own desires and our own thought processes, our own blind spots. We were chatting to one guy so one time and he was doing something stupid. And he, and he said, listen, you've just got a blind spot. And he said, if I've got a blind spot, why can't I see it? We've all got blind spots. And so as well as the word and as well as the spirit, God's given us a third thing to triangulate us. Any ideas what that might be? The church. Common sense. I wish it was common sense. If common sense really was common, we'd have a lot less problems. <laughs> Although common sense is an undervalued attribute. He's given us each other. And this idea that I can just, it's just me and Jesus. I, I was um, good friends with a guy. I was what, uh, looking at some of his social media posts. And he was going on about something and how leaders are this, that, and the other. And he says, because I'm not a sheep. I'm a gospel individual. A what? Let me just have a This is where scripture is useful. Gospel individual. Let me know. You are a sheep. You are a sheep. Sheep follow. And here's the thing. Sheep follow whether they think they're following or not. Even the rebels follow somebody. I'm a rebel, just like all the other rebels. And years ago in Turkey, there was, um, there was a huge flock of sheep being looked after by a bunch of shepherds from the village. And the shepherds sat down for lunch. True story, you can, honestly, true story, verified, BBC News, the whole thing. And the shepherds sat down to start having lunch, and while they were having lunch, they must have forgotten to watch the sheep carefully. And one of the sheep decided to walk towards the cliff and walk straight off the cliff, which would have been bad enough, except he was followed by the next sheep and the next sheep and the next sheep, and the entire flock of sheep walked off the cliff. I think something like 450 out of 800 sheep died 
The rest had a soft landing. <laughs> but here's the deal. When the shepherds were absent, the sheep followed whoever was moving. We all like to think we're independent and strong. We follow people. Peer pressure is incredibly strong. You don't even know how strong it is. There is something, I believe there's something in human nature that God put there that is the desire to belong and connect. And in that desire to belong and connect in fallen man, it means we follow people to our own destruction. But God has given us the church and he's given us leaders. I'll just give you some scriptures on that because this is the one people start twitching at, you know. I, I love, you know, I can read the Bible for myself. I can hear the Holy Spirit for myself. I can be strong and independent and spiritual. But now you're telling me I've got to listen to somebody else. Yeah, I'm telling you, you've got to listen to somebody else. Let me give you some scriptures. It's always a good idea to use a scripture or two in, in a preach, isn't it? Just talk about amongst yourselves. My, my document just closed. I'll just dance while I find it. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Hebrews 13, verse 7 and verse 17. Talk about obey your elders, submit to them. Not because they're on a power trip but because they care for you and they know that one day they're going to stand before God and Jesus is going to say to uh, Richard, so Richard, how did you lead these people? When those winds of doctrine were coming, how did you anchor them in the truth? When they needed to know what to do, what perspective did you give them? And it's not that you must obey me or Richard, or any of the elders. You know, people come to me and they go, Mike, what must I do? And I say, I have no idea. What did Jesus say? They say, I don't know. So go away, pray about it. Then let's have a conversation. Because it's not actually about obeying me. My job is not to get you to obey me. My job is to train you to follow Jesus. My point, I'm pointing to Jesus and the truth. And so if you come back to me and say, Mike, I prayed about it, and God said, divorce my wife and marry my secretary, I can say, no, he didn't. Let's try again. <laughs> but I want to partner with you to find truth. I want to partner with you that your life can glorify Jesus. In Exodus, I love this, um, just after God, the, the scriptures as described the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Yeah, and it says it was always with them and that's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Everybody could see it and wherever the cloud went, the people went. Brilliant. And then the very next verse, it says, God said to Moses, tell the people to go to this place. What? Why did Moses have to tell the people where to go? They had the pillar. All they had to do was follow the pillar. The problem is people on their own don't follow the Spirit. We need reminding, we need encouraging, we need correcting, we need rebuking. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with all authority, Scripture says. And it's not just the elders, it's each other. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, 
verse 10. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Elsewhere it says, a different way of saying this, and it says this, um, when two walk together, if one falls, but when one walks alone, when he falls. In other words, when you're walking along on your own, it's inevitable that you will fall. When you're walking with each other, it's likely that you'll fall, not inevitable. But when you do fall, there's somebody to pick you up. And this written by Solomon supposedly the wisest man who ever lived. In verse 13, he says this. This is, this is a profound and tragic statement in many ways. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, became so proud and so he, he started veering from the truth, started compromising. Way before his reign, God warned, he said, when you have kings, make sure you don't do these three things. Don't accumulate a lot of gold, don't get yourself lots of horses, and don't marry lots of wives. And at the beginning of Solomon's reign, what does it, what does it tell us? He had lots of gold, lots of horses, and lots of wives. And he stopped taking counsel. One of the things I say to elders is you don't mature out of the need to get counsel. You grow into a greater need because the greater your responsibility, the greater your need not to mess up. When I was a young single guy and I did stupid things, I was messing up my own life. Then I became a husband and I realized I'd mess up my wife's life. Then I became a father. Then as an elder, then working apostolic. If I mess up now, nations are affected. I have more need than ever for perspective, counsel, advice, and to be submissive. He said, but what if my elders are wrong? Well, you've got Richard. It's unlikely. <laughs> I was wrong once. Yeah, yeah, I thought I'd made a mistake. But it's a triangulation. So if Richard says, divorce your wife and marry your secretary, you can say, no, you're contrary to scripture. And when we triangulate, those things should be in line. But unfortunately, we do this. Who knows what parallax is? And I'm, I'm coming to land here. Does anybody know what parallax is? Any teachers, any scientists? Okay, so so parallax, correct me if I'm wrong, essentially, when you're looking at something, when you're looking at a readout and you look at it from the wrong angle, the distance between the needle and the reading means you get it wrong, yeah? Because you're looking at it from an angle. So I've only got one point of reference and then the truth, and I do this, I read it wrong. So I just want a couple of volunteers, a couple of young, sprightly people. Come, 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 come. And, and Richard, young sprightly people and Richard. So Richard, you, you can stand here. And Richard represents the truth. He's Jesus, okay? He's who we're aiming for. He's who, we're, you know, we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And then we've got... Maria. Beautiful young Christian girl who's wanting to follow Jesus. And then we have... Gina. <laughs> and Gina represents the Bible. Okay. So the Bible must be in line with Christ, right? That's great. So you would think, if I just line myself up, if I just line up with Christ, then... I'm going in the right direction. The problem is when we've only got one point of reference, parallax can take over. And we're just looking at scripture and we're here. And what we do is because we're looking at this angle, instead of adjusting ourselves, often what happens is we assume that Jesus must be here. Does that make sense to you? We end up adjusting Jesus or the Bible rather than ourselves. Morning. Now we have another point of reference, the Holy Spirit, who's in line with the Word and Jesus. Now, when our beautiful young Christian girl is wondering what to do, when you stood here, stand here, is everything in line? No. Stand here. <laughs> no, you don't shift. <laughs> Everything in line? Well, stand, stand where everything's in line. Stand where you know everything's in agreement. You see, it's so much easier to know that I'm the one needing adjustment because everything else is in line. And I've got three points of reference there. Two points of reference. Parallax can kick in. Thank you. Thank you. And this is the challenge. One of the greatest difficulties for us when things don't line up is to acknowledge that I'm the one out of line. When I'm not satisfied in church, is it my position, my attitude, or is it the elders and the... When I'm offended, am I out of line, or is it what he did? <laughs> When I'm living for myself. Being humble enough to know that I'm the one that has to shift. Maybe it's different for you. I've been following Jesus 50 years. And even now, sometimes, it's so difficult for me to know that I'm the one that has to shift. And instead, it's so easy to go around and finding counsel, or doctrine, or teaching, or leaders, or churches, or some internet guru, or some book that will tell me what my itching ear wants to hear, that I'm awesome, and everything else has to change. And how crazy is it that people are dispensing with central doctrinal foundational truths that have been placed for 2,000 years and throwing them out now, saying, oh, but we know better. You know why it is? Because people would rather change age-old truths than change themselves. How do we protect ourselves against these winds of doctrine that are blowing through the church? In humility, 
in humility, we attend to the Word and the Spirit continually in our lives in submission to one another, in submission to our leaders, and join to one another, loving one another to speak the truth in love and encouraging, correcting, and rebuking one another. And in Hebrews, it says, and encouraging each other even more as the day approaches. I don't know how long it is before Jesus returns. I know it's closer now than it's ever been before. But I think we need to be living as though the the return of Jesus is imminent. We need to guard ourselves and make sure that we're found in the truth. Amen.